0: Hello everyone, it is Ryan here, host of the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. Now this is a podcast where I get to have conversations with some amazing people from all over the world who have stories to share, experiences we can learn from, and knowledge in areas that we can use and apply to our lives to make us better and happier people. Now each episode has a different topic, but all geared towards helping us along our own pursuit of happiness and helping us understand this journey we call life just a little better. We'll touch on everything from mental health to nutrition, diet, fitness, travel, adventure, relationships, and believe me, much, much more. All along this journey, I'll experiment and apply some of the advice and information from my conversations to see how it affects me along my own pursuit of happiness and then report back to you. Now, don't forget, if you enjoy this episode or any other episode, Please take a moment, subscribe, leave me a rating and a review. It is truly, truly appreciated while also helping get these great conversations to even more listeners. And on this episode, I am proud to introduce Rob Wolf. Now, you may have heard of Rob Wolf on the Joe Rogan experience a few times. If not, you have probably heard or seen some of his works. Now, Rob is a former research biochemist. He's also a two-times New York Times Wall Street Journal best-selling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. And he's also the co-author to book and documentary Sacred Cow. But on top of all of that, he is the co-founder of Element. That's L-M-N-T. Go check it out. DrinkElement.com It is a drink that was created a few years back that is honestly... Taking over the market, and I'm not kidding. I was introduced to Element a few months back, and since then, I cannot stop hearing about it. So, of course, I had to try this. I went to drinkelement.com, got myself a sample pack, and I was honestly very pleasantly surprised. It tastes awesome, and the benefits are great. These small little packs are all about the sodium, the potassium, magnesium and those electrolytes so we really get into the science behind how this product was created and how it's supposed to benefit people like you and me it's not every day you get to go behind the branding and the marketing and talk to the biochemist who actually created the product so i am very thankful to rob for joining me on my podcast and also talking about his personal health scare which got him into researching the paleo diet intermittent fasting and becoming just an absolute beast in the CrossFit community. I can't tell you how excited I am for you to listen to this episode. So let's get it going with the legendary Rob Wolf. So Rob, your reputation precedes you. I am very thankful for you taking the time to talk with me on my podcast, um, I can't wait to get into this. There's, I feel like there's a million questions I can ask you with your knowledge and research, but I think we're going to focus a little bit more on the element product today, and I'm super okay. excited to talk about that. But uh, first and foremost, Rob, how are you doing today?
1: All good. Really good. Uh, it's starting to get a little bit chilly in Montana, and we're we're uh, taking a little family pool as to when the first snow is going to fall here in the Flathead Valley. It's been in the mountains, but not yet, and it's looking like Saturday might be might be it. Which my daughter Sagan has her money on that one. So we'll see who who takes the pot of uh, four dollars.
0: <laughs> oh, that's incredible! Are you looking yeah. forward to the snow already, or no? Do you want to
1: delay it? I, I am. You know, my kids love it. I really enjoy it. Um, when we lived in Reno, we got snow, but it um it, it would snow one day, the sun would come out the next day, the snow melts. You know, so there wasn't like huge accumulation if um if Montana decides to get after it you can get a lot of snow here so that that will be interesting so Oh that's yeah. incredible. Whereabouts in Montana are you? We're in Kalispell outside of Kalispell.
0: Okay, so that's not too far from Glacier,
1: right? We're, from my back porch it's like a 23 minute drive to get to the Glacier oh, West man. entrance. Yeah, it's not not a bad gig. Yeah. Oh not a bad man. Gig.
0: Okay. So yeah. I've been telling people like when I retire, I may or may not end up in Montana one day. So out of curiosity, how like how has your move to Montana been so far? Are you happy there?
1: We we love it. I mean, my kids. Um, ju- we were in Texas before, and we liked a lot about it. Like the kids got to go swimming on Christmas Day in the, <laughs> in the backyard.
0: I don't you know, know if I, mean, would, I don't
1: know if I would like that though. That's not what Christmas I, it, is to me, They but. didn't. They didn't. I mean, they enjoyed swimming, but they're like, "This is weird. There's no snow. We can't even see snow anywhere." You know, and uh, uh, we've just really enjoyed Montana. I, I kind of realized for my own personal sanity, like I I haven't really understood a good quantification for like what level of like infrastructure is enough or too much for me. But we did a a family trip to go back to to Reno to to visit some family, went went through Boise, went into Reno. And what I realized is anywhere with an interstate attached Mm. to it is too much. Oh, okay. <laughs> Once you hit the six lanes of 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 the road yeah. even if it's going through the town I'm like that's too much. So, yeah, that's basically my I just have to stay below living Anywhere with an interstate in it, and I'll, I'll probably be okay.
0: That makes sense. That's actually not a bad way to live. And uh, yeah, yeah. So I flew into Reno for the first time ever just a few months ago, but it was okay. kind of in and out. It was we just uh, my girlfriend and I went to Lake Tahoe, which was nice, obviously gorgeous. Um yep. Just before all the fires started happening, so thank God for that. And uh, yep. hopefully, hopefully, the area you're familiar with is safe and sound. I know it was kind of a, a brutal summer for fires. It there.
1: absolutely was. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's terrible. But uh, yeah, so Lake Tahoe, beautiful area. Montana, beautiful. I've been to, uh, flew into Missoula, drove up through Kalispell, I believe, stayed in Whitefish and went to Glacier. And uh, oh my God, wow. It's a place, there's a few places you go in life that call you back. You're like, I got to go back. And that's definitely one of them. Oh, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. So
1: Yeah, it is. We're super lucky. Super lucky.
0: Well, that's on my bucket list. One of these days, maybe I'll be able to do that. So Nice. Rob Wolf um you are very well known uh in my circles <laughs> let alone just the whole interwebs of 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 fame like everything you've done is just is remarkable so i i have a list of all the titles that you have on your website and i want to read them off because you know oh you goodness. deserve that so we have a former research biochemist, which is just awesome in itself. Let alone a two times New York or yeah, two times New York Times and Wall Street Journal best selling author. And correct me if I'm wrong; those books are The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. Correct. And also, you were the co author of The Sacred Cow as well. Yes. Yep. Oh, this is crazy. And so you're also a podcast host as well of the Healthy Rebellion. And you are a former California state powerlifting champion.
1: A very long time ago. Yes. <laughs>
0: and the founder of Element, which is incredible. Oh man, your, your resume is just incredible. You're somebody who I can pick your brain for hours and hours and hours. You have so much great knowledge. And it's funny that before this podcast, I was doing more research on you and I was going through um, old podcast and you were on the Rogan Experience which is super cool. Real quick, tell, yeah. me how, tell me how that was. I believe you were on twice, right?
1: Yeah, I was on twice. Uh, we were supposed to do it for Sacred Cow, like uh, the Sacred Cow release. And then even though I was complaining that it doesn't snow in Texas, when it does snow in Texas, the world comes to a screeching halt. So uh, Diana Rogers had flown into Austin, was staying there, uh, just walking distance from the uh, studio that Joe has. And the day before we were supposed to go, or maybe it was like two days before the snowpocalypse hit where it, of course. it, was, it was below 10 degrees. Like the, the high temperature was maybe 11 degrees. The low temperature was in the single digits for like three days, which I think is legit cold no matter where you are. But for oh, Texas, yeah. it was like really cold. We got almost two feet of snow and everything just kind of ground to a halt. And wow. um, uh, Diana was stuck at this hotel and she I pinged her. I'm like, are you getting any food? And she was like, I have a a bag of almonds and like three white claws. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. So perfect I, for a snow It's absolutely perfect. Uh, it seem, seems like a horrible last meal, you know, but um <laughs> I ended up spinning up my my Subaru and and ran the gauntlet to go get her and bring her back to our house. But yeah, we ended up not going on the third time. But Joe's amazing. Like he's a a really legitimately brilliant guy and a, a very curious guy. Um, mm. if I had any, uh, uh, gripes, it's that sometimes when either myself or someone else is really making a key point because Joe is so random access, he makes so many interesting connections, mm. uh, not infrequently, he'll end up going down a rabbit track that just, dis- you know, kind of distracts from like the, the main point, but, um, you know, you can't really say enough good stuff about the guy, particularly I I think in this last, you know, two years of just remaining curious and open to all the discussions around like COVID and lockdowns and, you know, alternate therapeutics and, and stuff like that. Um, he he's really, in my opinion, been a very stand-up individual, Mm -hmm. you know, just trying to keep lines of communication open around that stuff, which I, I think is, is critically important.
0: Right. And yeah, like it or not, he is the premier podcast host. He is a host that most of us, like myself, you know, get inspiration from. And he's one right. of the reasons I created this. And it was funny, you just said that sometimes you go down a rabbit hole, which is another reason I created this. So it was like, you know, I would love to ask the questions that I really want to know. So right. I created a platform where I can do that. And that's one reason why I'm so thankful for someone like you and your stature to come on my show, because I have so Thank many you. questions. No, Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. So like I said, when you're, when you're on the Rogan experience and he is the inspiration, he is the pinnacle of podcast. Hosts, I had to be, uh, I had to be curious about that one to, to see how that went. But, um, yeah, before we get into element, I would love a, a little more background and how you became a biochemist.
1: Oh man. Uh, I wasn't, I've, I've always been interested in health. So I, I did the powerlifting gig. I got into Thai boxing pretty early on. Um, both of my parents were sick as long as I can remember. Like both, uh, both of them smoked. My dad drank a fair amount. Uh, my mom ended up with, I think she had this for it, maybe most of her adult life, but we didn't have a name to put on everything she had going on until maybe I was in my early late, yeah, late twenties. But she had just this interrelated about eight different autoimmune diseases. She had celiac, wow. she had lupus rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's like on and on and on. And, and, um, I knew that I wanted to do something health related, but I wasn't entirely sure what it was. And I I just decided I'm going to go to medical school like that. You know, I've always been a fan of science and, uh, uh, I got into a it, my general chemistry class. I enjoyed, and then I got to organic chemistry, and I just <laughs> loved it. Like oh, wow. I loved it. I couldn't believe how much I loved it, and I was really, really good at it. Like it's one of those things that I, I naturally had a knack for it. Like I could see the structures in my head, and I really got like the way that the things went together. So I I did really well with that, but. Um, I was born like 50 years too late, like 50 years prior organic chemists were like hot shots because we were still in this, this thing of like synthesizing things, you know, kind of one beaker at a time and, mm. and, uh, you know, characterizing different, different molecules and everything. But it, by the time I hit organic chemistry, uh, this process called combinatorial chemistry come up where they'll, they'll set up, um, a hundred or a thousand different reactions in these tiny little vessels. And so you could run experiments in parallel and you still need organic chemists to kind of figure out some of the stuff going on there, but it, um, it, job prospects doing that were, were not great. Like being a chemist in general is, is a lot of work and not, not potentially a, a ton of reward on it, but, um, that it, it was a great, it's a great uh, degree to get to go to medical school because yeah. you get a lot of the hard science, but you also get a lot of the biological sciences. And so it's kind of right at that that interface there. And so a lot of it was just driven by interest and passion. And I was really thinking about going to medical school. But when I became very sick, I had ulcerative colitis um, so bad that they were looking at a, a bowel resection for me. And I was about 26, 27 years old. And I knew enough about medicine that I, you know, I understood that, this type of surgery was going to change my life forever. Uh, the immunosuppressant drugs that can be used to manage this condition are really nasty and have a lot of side effects, not the least of which are increased rates of cancer because we're suppressing the normal immune response. Hmm. And so I, I looked for any alternative I could find in that, that area. And that ultimately is what led me into this whole paleo diet, ancestral health kind of, kind of model. And that largely allowed me to regain my health. Like I'm, I'm, almost 50, I'll turn 50 in January. And I, I feel like most of my, my health is much better now than what it was in my mid twenties. I'm about 170 pounds right now. My low ebb of ulcerative colitis, I was about 125, 130 pounds from malabsorption. So if you imagine 30 or 40 pounds less of me, like I, I was in wow. pretty, pretty dire condition, but that's really what, what got me launched into all of this stuff. And on the heels of that, I, I got involved with CrossFit back around 2001. I co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms, worked in and out of CrossFit for a long time, and then just kind of spun up my own, my own career path. But, you know, those are the, the paleo or ancestral health has kind of been my, my um, I, I guess, orienting feature, my North Star. When I think about different health-related problems, I try to look at it through that evolutionary lens. Uh, but definitely have a strong strength and conditioning, you know, movement background and everything. And that's kind of a full fo- informed everything that I've done throughout my career.
0: Wow. No, that's incredible. 126 pounds. And you're, you're very built right now. So obviously, yeah, you corrected that. Like,
1: so you said you went paleo, like what Basically was the, a, what was the science behind paleo? That. Yeah. You know,
0: what,
1: when, when I found out about the ulcerative colitis and, and the other thing that we found out in talking to my mom, so she, she, said that she had celiac disease, which is this autoimmune gluten reactivity. And I got tested and I also had celiac and that was mm. likely a contributor to the ulcerative colitis. Although interestingly, my GI doc at the time was like, no, 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 that's totally separate. Like this inflammatory response in your gut is totally unrelated to the other inflammatory <laughs> response in your gut, which just didn't, didn't really make sense to me. And if you poke around in the literature, there's pretty clear linkage with this stuff, but I, my mom was screened by this rheumatologist and I I've never been able to talk to the guy. I don't know why he did in this case. And, and, but, uh, he, he did some, some food sensitivity screening on her and she was reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy. And I was kind of like, huh, grains, legumes, and dairy. Well, what on earth do you eat if you don't eat that? You know, I mean, that's kind of like the, the basis of our, our diet more or less, but I started thinking about that. I'm like, okay, that's like, agricultural foods and that's from the Neolithic. And then before the Neolithic was this Paleolithic and this is back in 1998. So I had heard somewhere along the line, this term Paleolithic diet, you know, eating the way that hunter gatherers would have eaten. And since a, a a child I've been interested in evolutionary biology and just kind of the concept of evolution and how that kind of informs our, or provides a, uh, a way of looking at the world to maybe make some, some sense out of stuff. So I started thinking about that. And the idea of a paleo diet got on my, my, my mind. And I I searched for the term paleolithic diet and I had to wait, you know, I went into the house, turned on the computer, the computer had to boot up and then there was a dial up. And then this brand new search engine called Google popped up and i into it. I put paleolithic diet and there wasn't a ton of material, but there were a couple of folks, uh, Lauren Cordain and Arthur Devaney were kind of the two main people that I could find any material on at that time. But what was interesting is that a a strong case was made in what I was reading that although agriculture has been a huge boon for humanity in many ways, that there may have been some downsides that maybe there's some mismatch between like the carbohydrate load and some of the immunogenic features of some of these foods like celiac disease and whatnot. And it made the case that uh, potentially a lot of what we see as modern gastrointestinal and autoimmune conditions, maybe an an outgrowth of this like diet, you know, genetic mismatch. So I thought, well, I am sick enough that I literally have nothing to lose. You know, I, I was uh, close to dying. So at that time, there were no paleo diet books, the genre didn't exist. And so in poking around further, most of what existed was just discussions around low carb and the avoidance of, of, primarily carbohydrates, but it looked a lot like what you would, you would imagine most kind of iterations of a paleo diet looking like. And the best thing I could track down was a, an Atkins new diet revolution book. And mm-hmm. so I, I got one of those. And interestingly in the book, people always associate if they associate Atkins with anything favorable, you know, it's just kind of weight loss, but he talked about like GERD and, and autoimmune diseases and all these things improving with, a with an Atkins, you know, low carb, type of approach. So I gave it a shot. And I mean, the, the results were immediate and stunning. Like it was not a subtle transformation. I immediately started gaining weight again, and I was still eating 3,500 calories a day, just trying to maintain, you know, and prior to that, I was eating a a minimally processed whole food, vegan diet, you know, so I, I was doing everything that I thought was right. But I mean, For some people that may work wonderfully for me, it was a disaster Mm -hmm. and it it really did not work. And so I couldn't have changed the way I was eating more than what I did, you know, it became very animal centric, uh, careful with the type of plants I I ate, um, pretty low carb. So my initial four way into this was really more of an Atkins-esque low carb approach, which actually works pretty well for me and is largely the way that I've eaten over the last, you know, 23 years. Um, I do a little bit of tinkering here and there to, to fuel jujitsu and, and stuff like that. But, you know, that's largely been the, the safe spot for me to, to exist with my food.
0: Wow. And I got to ask, like, if you didn't find this information on the paleo diet, what do you think would have happened within the next year or two of your life? I,
1: I mean, I might've died, you know, be you know, some sort of ulcerative uh, rupture or, or something like that. Uh, I would have almost certainly ended up with surgery and immunosuppressant drugs, and I might have a, you know, a colostomy bag now or something like that at, at, at best. So I've met a lot of people who ended up in that, that same scenario, but just ended up further down the road before they, they discovered some of these, these other things that might be helpful. So I wouldn't have been good. It it definitely would, you know, I, it would have been a very different life. And I I think a much less healthy life than what I have been fortunate to, to experience.
0: Wow, yeah, it is um I don't know, it's just a lot more impactful taking advice and perhaps even like buying the products of someone that has actually like lived through this rather than someone who's just putting a product out there to make money like the research you have and actually living through this is just, you know, it's proof that you know what you're talking about, and and thank God that you were able to to find that and adjust your life. And I've seen pictures, man. You're ripped. You're jacked. Jet- oh, you're thanks. doing
1: well. The, I the mean- liposuction is paying <laughs> off. So yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, you're doing something right. But uh, I do know that I saw there was a post on. <clears throat> I believe is yours. The element, I think it was the element, um, social media, the Instagram this morning about, uh, intermittent fasting that you wrote in mm-hmm. the book. And that's something I've been practicing now for five or six years. I've done a few episodes on that. Well, that was, uh, that was life altering for me. Um, yeah. I practice that nearly every day. Not quite, you know, you go on vacation. I cheat a little bit and, or, you know, I get a little hungry an hour or two before my window. It's okay. Right. But, uh, Yeah. Fasting was, uh, was a game changer. Is that something that, uh, you still practice?
1: Yes. But, um, I mean, I'm super, I don't know if lazy is the right term, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not super fixated on it. Like Mm -hmm. I, I just do it to the degree that it kind of facilitates my life. So, uh, I get up in the morning, try to get a lot of my work done before the the kids wake up. We homeschool, I have seven and nine-year-old daughters. So I kind of have to get out of the gate pretty quick, but I like to have breakfast with them. So I'll usually eat breakfast around 9am. And that tends to be my, my larger meal, either that one or lunch. And then we will work up until about 11, 1130, and then go to jujitsu. And my wife and I do our jujitsu class, come home, feed ourselves, feed the kids. And that, like, if I have a really scorcher of a day, that may be my, my largest meal, because I'm able to kind of match calories and maybe throw in a little extra carbs based off of my, physical activity there. And then we try to get dinner somewhere around like four o'clock, five o'clock, but the girls oftentimes go to jujitsu or swimming or something like that. And so it may be a little bit later, but you know, the, I I wrote my first article on intermittent fasting in 2005 and it was released primarily to a CrossFit oriented group. And by 2006, I just deeply regretted releasing this thing because people were going crazy with it. You know, it, it, uh, uh, these type A personalities were looking at like, well, here's this benefit from 16 hours. I'll go 22 hours. And, you right. know, and, and, uh, and you start seeing people run ragged uh, with that that process. And I, I'm at a spot now where I, I feel like uh, intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating is a, a phenomenal tool. Like there are some people that aren't going to change the composition of what they eat, but you might get them to change the timing at least initially, they're like, I'm not going to change what I eat. It's like, okay, could you eat whatever you want between 9am and 5pm? Yeah. Okay. Let's start with that. So at Mm -hmm. least they're not going back to the refrigerator at nine o'clock at night and eating right before bed. And then the person starts eating, you know, they start feeling better. Like, well, you know, maybe I will eat some more protein now, and maybe I will clean up some of the compositional stuff. So the the main dietary interventions that were, were shared is, you know, monitor how much you're eating, but don't change the composition. That's like the standard dietetics model, you know, and hardly anybody can do it. Um, Mm. but then on the flip side of that, we have like paleo and vegan and low carb and carnivore and all this stuff. And again, hardly anybody can do those too. You know, I mean, if we're really honest about it, like most people don't stick to those things long-term and so intermittent fasting, I see as being this other, dietary option where we just tell folks, okay, don't worry about monitoring how much you eat. Don't worry about the composition of it. Just eat between these two, two benchmarks. And, and it's so between the three of them, maybe we can, you know, if we become more flexible in the way that, that we talk to folks about stuff, then that could become a more, you know, viable tool. Um, I, I do think that fasting gets a bit over sold with like, anti-aging benefits and stuff like that. I think once an individual is lean and metabolically healthy, you're lifting weights a couple of times a week. Um, I don't know if there's any additional upside to fasting other than if it streamlines your life and it, and it makes like calorie control Mm -hmm. easy. And you, you build some, some, uh, you realize that you don't need six meals a day. You're kind of like, Oh, I could get by on two meals a day or sometimes one meal a day. And so it liberates you from, from, you know, the the old nineties, you know, perspective, 1980s perspective that like you need to eat six meals a day and all that type of stuff. But I'm, I'm kind of in a contrarian camp on fasting. I'm really suspicious that there's much additional upside. People get all geeked out on like autophagy and mTOR and, and, you know, cellular recycling and, um, I did a talk at the very beginning of 2020 called longevity. Are we trying too hard? And unfortunately I only got to do it at one location, the metabolic health summit, and we do have it recorded and I'm going to make it kind of more broadly available. Cause I think it, it's pretty important stuff. And folks aren't asking enough questions around this, this topic. When they, when they cite studies around fasting and calorie restriction, um, they're, almost universally looking at animal models and looking at animal models in which the animals are fed a lab chow diet and they are always unhealthy. And Mm. and so we're comparing an unhealthy population eating ad libitum with an unhealthy population that's being fed less of the bad stuff. And so are you going to be better off eating less of the bad stuff the more? Yes. Mm. And the few studies that have looked at animals that are fed a species appropriate diet, like you feed a mouse, what it would eat in nature or, you know, a rat or what have you, and you calorie restrict them, they end up dying young. Like calorie restriction in nature is not a, a, a really, um, it is not a long-term strategy. Intermittency in eating is, is, you know, something that's baked in the cake that every meal is not guaranteed known and all that stuff. So that's a, again, maybe a, a hat tip towards, you know, some intermittency in eating, but I, I think that a lot of folks are going to look back 10 years from now and they're going to look at the amount of volume and intensity that they placed in fasting. And they're going to really wish that they had put a big chunk of that into eating more protein and an additional weight, uh, weightlifting session or two per week, you know, because the people do all this stuff. And once we get beyond just weight loss, they do it for these perceived ideas of like reducing cancer prevalence and things like that. And it's totally speculative. We have Mm. no real data that that is what's going to actually play out. And I, I, I go in this talk, I go through some mechanisms where I propose that it may actually be counterproductive in, in that regard, but above and beyond that, once every human being hits the age of about 30 or 35, all of us are facing a loss of muscle mass and, and bone mineral density as we age. And if we exercise and eat adequate protein, You know, if we don't do that, then we have a very predictable, steep decline. You know, once we get past our thirties, if we are training and eating well, that decline is flattened out a lot. Like a 90 year old who strength trains can be as physically fit as a 50 year old who, who is sedentary, Mm. which isn't doubling the lifespan, but it's doubling the health span of what we're used to. So. Yeah, yeah, that was a big, big answer to a simple question of like, hey, do do you still look at intermittent fasting? But you know, it's no, that's great. interesting, but very large topic. Yeah,
0: that's great. Yeah, I've been doing a little bit of research too on longevity, as far as like following some of the stuff that Davis and Claire, Dr. David and Claire, does. Um, and I do know he says that calorie restriction is something that he's looking into as far as uh, longevity, um, and I was also listening to him talk about like resveratrol and I heard you bring up resveratrol as well on the Rogan podcast and uh, yep. how that's very hard to what digest, um, to absorb. Yeah. It's very it's hard difficult to absorb. to
1: absorb it. Yeah.
0: What is the yeah. best way to absorb that?
1: If you get it lifelized, like if they attach it to some sort of a lipid, uh, particle and, and then you eat it with a fatty meal, then it will, it will tend to enhance the absorption. And yeah. it's possible some things like that are like some low dose, uh, Uh, glucophage or something. Um, There's the, uh, uh, what's the the big one? Um, Peter T is super geeked out on it. He has it as his, his license plate, the, um, (laughs) the mTOR inhibitor, you you know, rapamycin, rapamycin, you know, so there might be something lurking somewhere out there where, you know, some intermittent punctuated doses of stuff like that might be beneficial, but I'm still kind of, I'm kind of suspicious you know it, it's uh I, I think that the main goal should be focused on extending the health span and mm-hmm. within that it doesn't mean that you become like a amateur bodybuilder but um fighting to maintain every scrap of muscle mass we can as we age and, and mm-hmm. in particular like power production like the the large fast twitch motor fibers and being able to produce power and explosiveness and and whatnot. It doesn't take a lot of work, like two days a week uh, uh, two full body training sessions is kind of a program minimum that I think folks can get a lot of benefit from. And this could be like selectorized weight machines that you, you go in and use those that will work just fine. If you want to do more barbells and dumbbells that that works too. But um, I think there's, you know, Walter Longo's like fasting mimicking diet and all all this stuff. I, I I find it really interesting, but again, when we need to quit comparing the potential upsides of these things with known to be sick individuals, because if we have, let's take some like mid-level, like CrossFit games athlete, you know, they're, they're, they're good, but they're not, they're not so invested in it that we could make the case that they're, they're burned out from like the volume and the intensity of training, but they carry a lot of muscle mass. They've got a really broad, uh, uh, you know, physiological engine. They can go hard for a short time. They can go hard for a long time. Um, they're very insulin sensitive, uh, they, they still have good androgen functioning. So they're producing the hormones they should produce and all that type of stuff. That's the person that we need to compare whether or not calorie restriction and intermittent fasting is of benefit, in my opinion, because mm-hmm. we already know that if you, if one is insulin resistant, significantly overweight, developing non-alcoholic fatty liver and all this stuff, that's a disaster compared mm-hmm. to that, that fit CrossFit games type person. We already know that. So I, I think that there, you know, it's kind of, a, we know that metabolic disease is bad. So why are we comparing it relative to that? Why don't we compare it to what we would see, you know, humans living in the 1940s, 1950s, where they're still doing farm work and, you know, we eat a minimally processed diet and we don't have electric lights on, you know, 24 seven and we're doing shift work and all that type of stuff. Like to me, that's really the, the benchmark that needs to be looked at to get a good sense there of whether or not there really is some additional upside, because I Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to beat that to death, but yeah. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, I love the skepticism. Um, I love, you know, we just need more information. Um, when you said that, uh, expanding health span, um, just got me thinking of expanding the prime of like an athlete's career. a la Mm -hmm. like a, like a Tom Brady. Yeah. Are you familiar whatsoever with the tb 12 method? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's very protein centric and, and, uh, Uh, I, I think like so many of these things, I think that you're for some section of the population, that's going to be exactly center of the bullseye. That's going to be exactly what they need. And then as as we get a bigger and bigger population, you're going to find fewer and fewer people for whom that is exactly a perfect fit. Same with paleo and low carb and veganism Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. there are some people for whom that, that basic template is just, bang on, like it is exactly what they needed exactly at that, that point in their life. And that's an important thing to keep in mind too, as people age, as they, they change physical activity status and different things, their nutritional needs change too. So like somebody who may do well with a lower protein vegan type diet, like in their twenties, they may not fare so well in their thirties and forties, like mm. it, the protein intake may be too low. They, the nutrient density is too low. So I I think that it changes from person to person as to what's really going to work. And then even for an individual, what they're doing may change over the course of their life cycle too.
0: That is something that I noticed in your, in your Rogan podcast, I'm sure other podcasts that you have is like, everybody is different. Literally everybody is different. So before we get into element and how that affects everybody, um, I got a question for you about like CrossFit. Some yeah. some of the pros and the cons of CrossFit. So my girlfriend's done it before. She just signed up again two weeks ago. She's loving it. She's feeling sore, and uh, it's got me thinking that I might want to give this a, a shot. You know, I'm very active. I'm physical. Um, I'm not nervous about that part. But uh, from your perspective, we'd love to know all the pros of of uh, CrossFit and perhaps some of the cons as well, if there is any.
1: Yeah. The, the pros is I see it. I think a well-run gym is cool in that for, for me, I, in my second book, the wired to eat, I broke the f- pillars of health down into food, sleep, w- which I throw circadian biology and like sunlight and everything into that movement and community. And on the community side, like I'm more of a lumper than a splitter. But so community, it's like the people around us and also our microbiome and you know, everything that we're interacting with. So it it kind of throws all that stuff together. And Mm -hmm. a well-run gym, like if the coach really knows what he or she is doing, um, you're going to get some great exercise. They should be talking to you about effective nutrition. They should also be counseling you on, on good sleep hygiene and, and, you know, circadian biology, because that's going to let's like the biggest return on investment anybody could do for their health is, is improve their, their sleep. And then the community part is baked in the cake. You're in a gym with a, a bunch of other people. So I think that it's amazing for that. Um, in the very beginning of CrossFit, the, the. cocksure swagger that was inherent in the movement was look at all the cool shit that we could do. And all we do are these short little workouts, Mm. you know? And so it was originally, and I'm kind of a geek of economics. Like I really like finding things are like good return on investment and, you know, minimal risk reward and all that. Mm -hmm. And these, uh, you know, singlets, couplets and triplets, uh, uh, you know, some focus strength work or strength work mixed with metabolic conditioning. It's just super time efficient. It's more like a game also, like you could look at doing, you know, three sets of 10 of back squat and then go for a jog or you could turn it into a game and you're going to say, okay, I'm going to do, um, front squats at, at some weight and, and, uh, I have to accumulate 10 reps on it. And then I run a 400 meter, you know, sprint and between that sprint being kind of relative. And I try to get three or four rounds of that done as quickly as I can. So it's much more like a game then, you know, you're, it's almost like an obstacle course obstacle. That is exactly yeah, what I was just yeah, thinking. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Which is way more fun. You know, it's just more cognitively engaging and you're just like plowing through this thing, you know? And so I think it's really time efficient and it's pretty cool in those regards. And that's the way that CrossFit started. And it was very appealing to me. Then with the CrossFit games, It shifted from figuring out what is the minimum effective dose? What's the minimum amount of stuff I need to do in the gym to be able to kick ass at every other thing I do in my life. And it turned into what's the most amount of work I can do without dying. And that's what the CrossFit games are, you know? And, uh, so it's become this like multi-day multi-event beatdown that is so much volume, so much intensity, uh, James Fitzgerald who won the first CrossFit games, you know, he, he's one of the most vocal people talking about like the, this thing is going to take years off your life being at that level. It'll take years off your life being at the high level of NFL or NBA or a host of other things, you know? And I mean, now that people could potentially make lots of money doing it, maybe this is a, a risk reward thing that they, they make there, but it's kind of, so I do a lot of old guy, Brazilian jiu jitsu, And although we have people who compete in our gym and our gym definitely supports people who compete it's not like a competition gym. That is not like the sole ethos there. There are a lot of people there just for basic self-defense. And the vast majority of people just found that they like jujitsu and they like the people who do jujitsu. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's it's honestly a pretext to go get hugs three times a week and <laughs> and hang out with people, you know? And um, I think that those are all the really laudable characteristics of CrossFit. But then the, the downside is that that last piece that I mentioned, it's it's shifted from what's the most simple, efficient way that we can get this stuff done to, do, you know, what's the most amount of work I can do without dying. Um, there's huge orthopedic considerations with this stuff. Like uh, Dr. Andrea Spina had, uh, founded the uh, functional range conditioning, functional range assessment, you know, uh, uh, kind of concept and. He makes this great case. You know, they'll have these, the workout says push press. So you're taking a barbell and driving it overhead and you do it however many times. And they will say, well, if you have cranky shoulders, we'll just scale it. We'll just make it lighter. That's what I have.
0: I have a bad shoulder.
1: Yeah. And Spina's like, after he assesses you, he's like a shoulder is this joint, a ball and socket joint that has these certain characteristics. It's got this external rotation. It's got this internal rotation. It does this, that, and the other. If you don't meet those criteria, you don't have a shoulder. And if you don't have a shoulder, hmm. you don't push press overhead. Oh. Now, it doesn't mean we don't do some sort of pressing, but maybe we do an incline bench or we do this or we do that, you know, but it is not the place that you start. You go, w- what happens when you write your name on the board among a bunch of other people and they say three, two, one, go. You're going to fucking kill yourself to not come in last like you and Greg Glassman saw this. He he had a, a quote that I, I thought was very insightful, but he never understood the power of it. In my opinion, men will die for points, including mm. women. Well, too, he was, he was quoting an old, uh, an old, uh, military general, but people will die for points and people will die to not come in dead last. And this is another, uh, you know, cool but also potentially hazardous feature is like when every single day is a competition for your life and a competition in which you're going to be ranked and potentially come in last people will burn themselves out they start like you start getting butterflies in your stomach at the prospect of going to the class because like there's the beat down there's the social ranking of like coming in last and all this type of stuff and when we ran our gym about 80 percent of our classes ultimately ended up being kind of CrossFit themed, but we didn't write names on the board. We didn't keep track of who came in first or or second. We actually set it up as like, here's all the stuff that we want you to get through. We would do a warm up. We would do skill work. Uh, The skill work was usually some sort of strength skill work or maybe gymnastic stuff. Then we had like kind of our meat of like a metabolic condition deal. And people had to go from a level one to a level two to a level three. And they had to show physical movement competency to get there. And funny enough, we had a really big thriving gym and we were able to pay our trainers well. And they had retirements and 401ks and stuff like that, you know, because it wasn't just like taking a tree and putting it in a chipper and just like blowing pieces out the the back end of it. So these are the things that are concerning for me around CrossFit. Like, I, I think the idea is so sticky and so good. And I mean, it is transformed fitness forever. Like you can go into like any walmart now and you see kettlebells and you see crossfit inspired type type stuff but i i think it's also something you have to root similar to a jujitsu or an mma gym like if you're a a professional and this isn't going to be the way that you make a living or you don't have some like inner demons you have to you know prove yourself over and you just want to do this for like health and fitness and longevity and have community you have to really shop around a little bit you have to make sure that the the coaches are are thinking about all these things. And if they have a background in like this FRC kin stretch type stuff, I think it's really helpful because you can't just do schlock bullshit programming. Once, once your eyes have been open to that, like you, mm. you can't go back. You took the red pill. You can't just do, okay, you got a broomstick. You've got a barbell with 180 pounds and we're all going to do snatches as fast as we can. You're like, I can't do it anymore. You just mm. something in you dies. Once you, once you get to that point.
0: Yeah. Your gym, of course, if it sounds much more appealing than killing myself, because it's funny, I told my girlfriend, I was like, yeah, I'm I'm so I'm, I'm interested in doing it. I just don't need someone bitching at me that I'm not lifting enough of my terrible shoulder because I was a pitcher for like 19 years. Right. My shoulder is jacked up. And then for the next week, I can't lift my shoulder to get a glass of water out of the out of the cupboard or whatever. It's just not well- worth
1: it. Yeah. Like John Berardi w- was really geeked out. on working with, with baseball players for a long time. And it's not just that it's jacked up. You pitchers have an anatomically different shoulder, mm-hmm. like because of all the loading and everything, like, where everything articulates, where things open, where things close. There were some really predictable changes there that don't bode well for a bunch of other stuff. Hmm. Now, does that mean you should never press overhead? No. Does that mean you should never hang from a bar? No. Does that mean you should never kip? No, but you definitely shouldn't go in there. Have your name, like you're already, you're athletic, you're strong, like neurologically you're wired up. And then we write your name on the board and we're like 50 pull-ups and then do a 400 meter thing like that's going to be a disaster. Mm. And then the, the disaster isn't just for you. It's also for the gym owner because you don't stay, you get injured or you just get hurt enough where you peel out and then you don't feel comfortable referring people. And so it really is this like synergistic cycle of if people would just not do ridiculous stuff and, and it takes more work, it takes more planning. Um, I think people are nervous that it's going to make it less fun, but it's, the fun thing is having a gym full of people that are happy and you can always whip the rash. You can always light them up, but there's, there's other ways to do that. That's where like med ball throws and pushing sleds and jump ropes and things like that. Like you can cook people in such a variety of ways, but these, um, orthopedically challenging movements and doing thousands and thousands of repetitions like this, you know, this butterfly movement, pull up and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I, I just, uh, some people do it for a long time and they have no no ill effects. But mm-hmm. uh, even now that CrossFit has been sold, um, internally they're having a lot more discussion now that they can actually have free discussion about this stuff. That there's a problem with the degree of of injury rates within the the, the system, and that they need something else to help the coaches risk stratify people and have them do movements that are much more appropriate for where they are and not just scale just because you have a, a shoulder that is orthopedically changed from from pitching doesn't just mean that you do a broomstick 100 times real fast overhead because that may not be good for you either like let's figure out how to rehabilitate that thing turn it into a healthy functional shoulder now we'll talk about loading it and we'll, we'll figure out what type of stuff we can do with it.
0: Man, boy, I wish I had five hours with you today. Do you have, do you how much time do you have left? We we can go uh, about 45 more minutes. Oh, oh my God. I am so happy to hear that. Okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm going to request at some point for you to come back. I got so much more to talk. We got jujitsu. We got MMA. We got uh, the shoulder. We have intermittent fasting, but we are talking athletics here. And we're also talking injuries and CrossFit. And what's helpful with that is recovery and correct me if I'm wrong, but element plays a big part in recovery. Now, before you start talking about that, I do need to give a shout out to Michael Winston. So Michael Winston is the person who introduced me to element and just randomly We were, my girlfriend and I were in Alaska in in the very end of August, beginning of September. And we're hiking out of glaciers. One of the coolest things we've ever done. And we went with the group and there was two other people behind us. And we are talking about my podcast. Now I love to talk about diet, health, nutrition, and whatnot. And he's like, I just started taking this thing called element, LMNT, LMNT. He talked about it for a few minutes he's like, yeah, we exchange emails at the end. And when I got home, there was an email in my inbox saying LMNT, here's Element. And I kid you not, I have it bold. I I have notes over here. It says (laughs) it was a game changer. That's what he said to me. And I'm like, okay, okay. So with that, I went to your website for LMNT, Element, and I ordered the sample pack, which is Awesome. I am like super thankful you guys offer a sample back for people to try that. And uh, lo and behold, I get a few days later, I got to admit, very pleasantly surprised at the taste and the flavors. I mean, your t-shirt right there says salty AF, salty as fuck, which it really is salty that you guys live by, but it's actually very tasty. hmm now, there's a lot of questions I have as far as Element itself, but uh, I would love to just kind of like know the history of how you built this first.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting story, or at least it, it it's interesting to me. Uh, we didn't four years ago. I wasn't imagining that I was going to be a salt mogul. Like that wasn't <laughs> remotely on my radar. Uh, most yeah, I won't even get into what I, what I was doing. I I was doing a medical risk assessment program that was really cool. And I was super invested in, and I still tinker with that. But so i have been eating this kind of lower carb diet for 23 years, um, which is great for like my cognitive performance. Like I'm just really clear headed. I don't get blood sugar highs. I don't get blood sugar lows. Um, even though I'm, I'm not super frisky on doing a ton of fasting if I get busy, you know, we just can't eat food or like if I'm traveling and I can't eat for a day or 36 hours, it's not a big deal. Like I'm I'm more or less in ketosis. And so that transition is, is easy. Um, so that's not a big deal, but the stuff I do is, is kind of higher intensity. I don't really do CrossFit anymore, but I do the jujitsu. And even though I try to have a really relaxed non-attribute game, I'm not trying to be super fast and explosive. It's just a demanding sport, you know, when you, you do an hour of, of class and drilling, and then you have open mat and it's five minute rounds and, you know, new person and the person maybe 60 pounds heavier than you. And you're Mm. trying not to get crushed. You know, it's a, it's a lot of work and I've always found it difficult to, to match my food with my physical activity. Um, I just didn't feel like I had this low gear, uh, for grappling, and I would be really blown out after after doing it, just kind of like neurologically, like like blown out, really fatigued. I was back in the old CrossFit days too, and I, I just kept casting around looking for what to do. Like I tried doing pre workout carbs and post workout carbs, and nah, it it helped a little bit, but if I ate enough carbs to really move the needle on my performance in the gym then I started getting back into blood sugar roller coasters. And so I was like, I don't know, I guess, you know, I'm just this kind of unique snowflake and I'm just going to have to suffer through this, but I kept poking around. And I found these two guys, uh, doing some really amazing work, uh, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, the founders of keto gains. And they had this community, a couple of hundred thousand people that they were doing body recomposition. Mainly some people losing lots of weight, some people gaining muscle. Well, while, while losing weight and, uh, mainly women, interestingly, using this appropriate protein, low carb diet, but like they had some people that were competing in jujitsu at a really high level and they were just following the basic keto gains template. And I was like, what's going on here? Like, what are these guys doing? So I, I kind of stalked them and started hanging out with them and had them look at what I was doing. And they were like, you're fine on your protein, carbs, fat, but you really need a lot more electrolytes, specifically sodium. And I was like, "Oh well, I salt my food. I'm not afraid of sodium. That that can't be it, you know." And and uh, these guys were much more knowledgeable on this topic from a coaching perspective than I am. And of course, what did I do? I just completely ignored, you know, this, exactly. this great advice. And because they're they, they're they're hard asses in a way, but they're very um, kind, considerate people. They they tolerated my, you know. Uh, shenanigans for a good year. And I just kept bitching and moaning and complaining (laughs) about suffering at jujitsu. And they were finally like, listen, man, when you're in this low carb environment, you tend to shed sodium at a a much accelerated rate. There's this process called the naturesis of fasting. When people fast, when people are on low carb diets, insulin drops, when insulin drops, aldosterone drops, aldosterone is this uh, adrenal hormone that helps us to regulate sodium. And when aldosterone is low, then we tend to lose sodium when we lose a lot of water. And this is what people call the, the keto flu. Um, this kind of low sodium dehydrated state is the reason why um, uh, hangovers suck because it's very, very similar to, mm. to doing all that stuff. And they were like, weigh and measure all the, everything you consume for a couple of days, every single thing. And we would like to see you at at least five grams of sodium per day. When you're mm. done. Mm. And I was getting less than two. Wow. And I was wow. like, okay. And they said, go drink some pickle juice. And so I went and grabbed some pickle juice and I did eight ounces of it and I drank it. And it was just like the lights came on. Wow. Now, of course, the guy who's peddling salt is gonna say salt's amazing, and you know, it fixes all that, but it really does. And and the two most tightly regulated physiological parameters that we have in our body are pH and electrolytes. Like if you end up in the emergency room, unconscious, you have a pulse? Are you breathing? Okay. Now pH and electrolytes, because if pH or electrolytes are off by a little bit, you either get very sick or you die. Like they're really tightly regulated. Every muscle contraction we have, every nerve impulse that is generated is driven by sodium potassium pumps. Like this is, you know, the Krebs cycle and everything. This is basic bioenergetics, you know, is this sodium potassium pump. So if things are off there, one is going to be really off. And this is even above and beyond like fluid compartmentalization. Like do we have edema in the brain because we have too little sodium and too much potassium in our body? Um, It goes above and beyond even, you know, we get markedly elevated heart rate when, we are hyponatremic, low sodium and low blood volume. So the heart has to work harder to get the same amount of, of blood moved around the body. So there's all these reasons why adequate electrolyte status and and sodium in particular are really important. And in the modern diet, people get too little potassium, too little magnesium and too much sodium. But when people shift to any type of a more, whole food-based diet, all of the main sodium sources disappear. And then they get lots of potassium, lots of magnesium and inadequate sodium. Mm. And what's interesting in all that is if we get adequate sodium, it's much easier for the kidneys to sort things out and make sure that we have adequate potassium, magnesium, calcium. But if we're under fueled with sodium, it's difficult for the body to get ahead of that. And it's kind of one of these things, it's just empirical, like a uh, the best marketing that we've done for elements is figuring out ways of giving product away. We're just like try it, just try it, and then people try it and they're like, oh my god, I, it works. And what we did initially, like we we still four years ago, three and a half years ago, we weren't thinking about a product. We just really recognized. And Tyler and Luis were buttoned up on this long before I was. Like I understood the basic biochemistry of like low carb diets and ketogenic diets and whatnot, but. It, this whole story about the really remarkable increased need for sodium was not on my radar. Mm. So when I became aware of that, I'm like, dude, we've got to tell everybody about this. So we put together a guide and it was basically how to make your own keto aid. We called it keto aid, you know, and it was this much table salt, this much potassium chloride, which is no salt, some magnesium citrate, lemon juice, stevia, water, shake it up, drink it. And we made this downloadable guide and within, six months. Like we had a half million downloads to this Wow, Like it was crazy. And we had all this feedback. Oh man, I feel so much better. My recovery after training is way better. I don't feel blown out. I'm not so lethargic. Um, but then people started running into problems or like, this is great. But when I travel, the three bags of white powder are a problem with CSA, you know? And so (laughs) could you guys do some sort of a a product that, that would make this easier? And literally, so we, it was this process of me realizing that I personally needed a lot more sodium and electrolytes. And mm. that addressed my need. I recognized that all these people that we were serving were really underpowered on their electrolytes. Mm. And so we did this freemium thing, just begging people get more sodium. And it, we provided food sources, you know, like 10 olives or a gram of sodium, a couple of ounces of salami. So we tried to get it from food sources, but then we also provided this drink option. And then people started asking us for a better, you know, a better like beverage, you know, convenience play. And so we Mm. put together element and that was three years ago. And the company has grown like crazy. Like it's, uh, I think one of the fastest growing companies in like the health and wellness space. And it,
0: it is, it honestly yeah. is. Um, I've heard of element as say three, four, five times just out in the wild ever since mm-hmm. I've heard of it. It was, um, so I had a podcast last week with the guys from health hacked, which you actually mm-hmm. jumped on last year, I believe it was. And they said, Oh yeah, we, we're like, we work with element and stuff. And then, I went to Austin, Texas last week just to have you know a good good time with my buddy. I ran into some guy at um, at a brewery. He was like, "Oh yeah, like Element, like I drink that stuff." I'm like, "What is going on here?" Like, yeah, you guys are you're booming big time, and uh, your brand looks amazing. I so I do Thank brand you. and graphic design, and everything. It's it's beautiful, great job, whoever did that. Great job, it's awesome. Um, so I kind of want to break it down just slightly even more. So what is an electrolyte, because I hear that all the time. You need to get your electrolytes. Like I was just, I ran into food poisoning like a month ago. And the first mm. thing, first thing I ate was heard was like, drink your electrolytes. It's just like, so we all hear that, but I don't necessarily know what that really means. What is an electrolyte and how does that
1: work? So electrolytes are these, these chemical constituents that are usually metal, some metal ions, and then they're, they're anion co cofactors. So like sodium and chloride, potassium and chloride. So like sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium are the primary kind of positively charged ions that are part of our, our electrolytes, uh, chloride bicarbonate phosphate are the negatively charged ones, but the real the big players. So like calcium plays an important role in muscle contraction. Like it's in that, that, that deal where we're doing the cross-linking and way the muscle's release is, is, uh, decoupling calcium from the, the, uh, those myosin cross bridges and whatnot. So it's, it's important as an electrolyte in some cases, it's part of the clotting cascade. Um, magnesium is important for, uh, ATP production, but the real important pieces to this are really sodium and potassium. Like they really are the workhorses. And that largely relates again, back to our sodium potassium pumps, mm. which are the way that I think all organisms on the planet, like eukaryotic bacteria and archaea, the way that they drive energy is by, by uh, facilitating these sodium potassium pumps. It's basically like creating a gradient or a dam where you've got water. You, you invest energy to put water behind a dam, then you recollect that energy as the water comes out of the dam. And the, this electrochemical impulse is the way that nerves fire, the way that muscles function. And where something that got lost in this whole story if you look at like a textbook of medical physiology, like a guidance textbook of medical physiology that, that most first year uh, medical students will, will use to, to get going in their, their medical careers. When you look at electrolytes, it, it's the water and the, or when we look at hydration It's not just water, it's the water and the electrolytes that go into the body. And there's certain amounts and ratios that, that make those up. And the kidneys are really good at helping to maintain those ratios. Like they're working constantly to offload a little bit of water, retain a little bit of sodium to, to keep all these ratios there. But somewhere along the line, hydration became synonymous with just water. And the problem that arises there is that particularly in an active population, when we sweat we lose water and we, we do that to thermoregulate, you know, we're we're able to evaporatively cool and humans are really good at that. Women are better at it than men. As far as that evaporative cooling, men tend to have bigger sweat drops and women tend to have smaller and they actually evaporate better than men do. Hmm. Men tend to dump more water and dump more sodium in general. And so If you're doing something that is physically active, like we've done some work and got to look behind the curtain of some, some NHL teams and these dudes playing hockey, they're not huge, but they're 200, 200 plus pounds or big dudes are very, very active. They're wearing all this gear. These guys in the course of a hard practice or a game lose 10 pounds of water and 10 grams of sodium. Hmm. And if they don't get back ahead of that, they're going to have elevated heart rate, bad sleep, elevated cortisol, elevated epinephrine. Like it's kind of a disaster, but they are already low in sodium. And if they just go and drink water, it's actually diluting Mm -hmm. the sodium more and it's Mm -hmm. making the situation worse. So this is where like that rehydration strategy, and you do not have to get all your sodium from like a a liquid source, but this is where finding good dietary sources of sodium, like olives, like pickles, like salami, like sardines, like those things are really wonderful sources of dietary sodium. And then you eat a generally broad, minimally processed diet that provides lots of potassium and lots of magnesium. And we tend to, to take care of things pretty, pretty effectively that way, but larger individuals, um, high work output, Heat, humidity, altitude, or cold, all of those things increase both general hydration need but also electrolyte needs.
0: This is awesome. Yeah, I love getting the backstory on this. And the thing that's coming to my mind right now is like, so who was this, I guess, intended for? And perhaps is this not intended for
1: somebody? Yeah, you know, the the center, the bullseye person initially was like this keto, low carb crowd. And we knew that there was application above and beyond that. But, uh, really the only people that we, I wouldn't see this being appropriate for would be the insulin resistant hypertensive individual. Uh, they have high blood pressure they're, they're uh, you know, they, they have insulin resistance. Usually the high blood pressure is actually a consequence of the insulin resistance, um, this is some of the stuff that is, is kind of out there in the, the medical world that if we reduce our sodium intake, it will reduce our blood pressure. And that's not really the case. Like the studies that have been done on this, put people on very, very sodium restricted diets and it decreases the blood pressure a little bit, but it's usually transitory. And interestingly, there's a, a good number of people that they will get a, a flavor of hypertension from being too low in sodium because the body starts dumping potassium to try to reestablish that, that sodium to potassium ratio. So, uh, the, the, the more perfect the fit is, you know, there's, there's different things. Are you, uh, very physically active? Do you, uh, eat a minimally processed diet? Do you have a, a hot or humid environment or, you know, like me, I live in Montana, so it's relatively cool but I do jujitsu three to five days a week. And I wear Mm. a rash guard and then a gi. And then I have somebody bigger than me typically trying to smash me. And they're basically a blanket for 45 minutes, you know? So (laughs) I have never weighed my gi before and after, but just holding it, like, it feels like three to five pounds of, of weight in there, Mm. you know? So like Mm. I'm dumping all this, this water in there. So these are all things that, um, increase sodium need and so something that we've been noticing is that so many people like that mid afternoon kind of energy slump where people would be like, Oh, I need an espresso or something like that. They're low in sodium. Mm. Like if we get people to just go drink some pickle juice or, or something like that, they're like, Oh, the the light, you know, the literally a, a light switch is, is flipped because once those sodium, once the general electrolyte profile is more favorable, more on point for what's good for our physiology, like people just feel great. So we've mm. been, kind of making this case that we're like the only real energy drink, like caffeine is great. It's got lots of applications, but it's not really producing energy. Energy is produced via these electron transport chain mechanisms and sodium potassium pumps. So if you really want an energy drink. The only energy drink that's going to facilitate that is one that has adequate electrolytes and the vast majority of the electrolyte products available. This is kind of the, the weird thing, man, you couldn't swing a cat and not a dead cat, and not find a, an electrolyte product, you know. Yeah, and yeah. but the real, from our perspective, they're just massively underpowered in sodium. Like people look at potassium, they look at magnesium; they are super important. Can't can't underplay their value enough. But again, when you what became obvious to me, what was kind of cool is I, I had a good background in biochemistry and physiology, but I didn't really have baggage going into this one way or another. So when we recognized that this was a real need, I read the medical literature on like reviews of electrolyte physiology with a pretty open mind. You know, it's like, if you had an electrical engineer read this stuff, like that person would, would not really have potentially a ton of bias around it. And what was clear was that if you had adequate sodium, everything else kind of sorted itself out. You definitely needed to get you know, dietary potassium and dietary magnesium, and those things can be challenging to get in a hyper-processed environment, but we are always advocating for a largely whole food, minimally processed diet. So again, I know it kind of bounced around there, but the, you know, the center of the bullseye is kind of lower carb Mm diets. But what we find is anybody eating a minimally processed diet, they tend to be you know, sodium deficient. And if you add significant physical activity and, you know, these other confounders in there, the American council of sports medicine, its guidelines for sodium intake for highly active individuals is between seven and 10 grams of sodium per day. Mm. And this is within, you know, orthodox medical literature, um, assuming that these people are probably already eating a pretty high carb diet and whatnot, but even, Even the ACSM recognizes that for high motor output people, they needed a significantly larger amount of sodium than a sedentary population.
0: Wow. Okay. So now I'm wondering like if you would consider me high motor. So if you, if I work out, let's just say about six times a week, hit the weights about eh, 60 minutes. Uh, Sometimes I'll do like the high intensity trainings for an hour or so might run sprints. I might run three, four miles a few days a week something like that. Constantly walking. I have a couple of Huskies, constantly yeah. walking them. I'm, uh, to oh. me, that's very high motor, but uh, is, would you consider that? Oh, I'm a high motor. Yeah. This is definitely something for me.
1: That's pretty high motor. And the, the, the thing that gets interesting in that is we could, we could have somebody that looks like your exact clone, mm-hmm. like same height, same weight, same age, same gender, the whole deal. But between the two of you, just based off the medical literature, you, between the two of you, you, there may be a two X difference in the amount of sodium necessary to keep both of you happy. Mm, mm. So this is one of the challenging things around like dosing. For sure. and, yep. and, uh, you know, because let's say, uh, there are folks that are called super sweaters and it's mainly men, but they discharge a disproportionately large amount of sweat and the amount of sodium in that sweat is much greater than somebody else. Like it can be more than a two X, difference there. So I would say that you're almost certainly in that kind of high motor realm but even there your optimum might be 5 grams of sodium from all sources diet and supplemental whereas your clone that is genetically a little bit different maybe two times that or even three times that in uh, you know let's say that that person moves to Costa Rica and is doing jujitsu in a steel walled building mm-hmm. and it's 90 degrees, 90% humidity. And they're wearing a gi like their, their electrolyte needs maybe yet another order to, you know, larger than that.
0: So I'm picturing uh, a lot of what you're saying is sweat output. Like mm-hmm. exact. Yeah. Cause I'm thinking like hot yoga is just dripping yep. sweat. Um, living in the, in the Carolina. Yeah. Sauna. I live in the sauna. Carolina. So going for a run in like August, you're just like, Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So, Sweat output is obviously a big indicator, but you also said cold and it does get cold and I'm constantly, you know, taking adventures out in the cold too. So how does that
1: work? Right. So cold air is, is interesting or just a cold environment is interesting because when we, when we are exposed to cold, our thirst mechanisms down regulate, we tend to drink less overall. And that can be problematic because if we start getting low blood volume, then we're not able to move heat around the body. And that's where like our hands and feet can start getting cold. Mm. And it's, it's due to nothing more than we're not using the plumbing in our body to just move heat around the body. So the, the cold weather can downregulate the thirst mechanisms. And then cold air is typically very, very dry. Like, especially if you get in a situation like we're going to have here in Montana, where we're going to have weeks or months where it's rarely above freezing. (laughs) <laughs> so the, it's literally like things are desiccating and freeze drying. Um, it, it gets kind of morbid, but if you look at like some of the mummies on Mount Everest, um, they're freeze dried. You know, they're they're laying in snow, but they're at a very high altitude, yeah. which has a low low uh, you know atmospheric pressure. So that tends to pull moisture out, and so the higher the altitude, the colder the air. more the moisture tends to leave our bodies, which will increase both our our water need, but also our our electrolyte need. And I, I will do a little, uh, shameless plug for Element on that front. They do really taste good. Like there's nothing magic about our formulation other than we really nailed the sodium potassium, uh, magnesium ratio. Uh, we just source sodium from like upstate new york it's not anything magic where there's no where there's from no, upstate because
0: i'm, I'm not upstate. even exactly
1: sure but there's some some mine where they they mine it and they don't use blasting with it because okay. the blasting introduces heavy metals into it so it's actually mined and everything and it's domestically sourced so like we're trying to source as much stuff as we can out of the united states and all that type of stuff but um it uh uh I would love to have some story that our our sodium is this magic mineral complex from like Nepal and it's the tears of llamas who have you know pooled it and it, it, but none of that like there's there's none of that it's just sodium chloride and potassium chloride magnesium malate and but uh, the flavors we spend a ton of time really making this stuff taste good and they're good and and this is one of the things that I think is valuable for cold weather. And it's also one of the ways that people can really get the dosing dialed in because the beverage tastes pretty good, even though it's cold, people will tend to, to drink it more. And what I've got going on in here right now is actually a salty Palmer. So it's a a Lipton decaf tea and then the orange flavored uh, element in 32 ounces and mixed up. And I, uh, so, you know, it's kind of chilly today and it's just really enjoyable. I don't want a, a can of icy beverage, but what I notice is when I definitely need sodium, this just tastes sweet. Like Mm. I don't, I don't taste salt and I I drink it at about 32 ounces dilution. My wife drinks it at like between 16 and 20, which I have no idea how she does that. (laughs) It's way too concentrated for me. But what I notice is that once I hit a certain point where I'll take another sip and it tastes salty, I don't want any more. I'm done. And, uh, there's some decent science that makes the case that that's kind of an internal mechanism that that you can use to figure out how much you need, because the, the dosing question is honestly like the hardest thing that we have to answer. We tend to give people uh, boundaries, you know, a minimum of five grams of sodium from all sources. Again, mm-hmm. dietary features like olives and pickles and, you know, salami and all that, but it can be up as much as uh, 10 or 15 grams of sodium, depending on the size of the individual physical activity, uh, specific genetic factors and all that type of stuff.
0: I'm wondering now, do you take this every day? Do you recommend even on recovery days or how
1: often do yeah, you? Maybe, maybe particularly on recovery days. Yeah. Oh, really? I okay. mean, it, yeah, it, it, but it, it just depends. The, the main thing that I, I use as a benchmark, like uh, was my sleep good? Um, do I have any like foggy headedness or lethargy? for years, I attributed to blood sugar swings, what was actually low sodium. Like I would feel kind of foggy headed and kind of out of it. And I thought that I was just having some sort of blood sugar stuff. And this is one benefit of doing a little bit of the, the kind of biohacker stuff. Although I hate that term, but I wore a continuous glucose monitor for a couple of months.
0: Mm.
1: And I would have these periods of time where my blood sugar was just consistent. It hadn't gone up. It hadn't gone down, but I felt really off. Mm. And then I would drink some electrolytes and then like 10 minutes later, I felt great. And I'm like, Oh, I haven't had blood sugar issues the last 20 years. I've had low sodium, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so what time of day should someone be taking this? That's what I'm really curious about Mm. knowing that I work out after work. So probably a couple hours, I'm going to work out here. Should I be taking that before a workout
1: or after to replenish? Again, it's going to be dependent on the person, but I'll, I'll walk people through a typical day for me. So I will get up and it's kind of funny after I had COVID, I don't like coffee anymore. Like, wow. I just don't Actually, That's like a good
0: thing. Coffee. That's a good thing. I
1: guess. I don't know. I kind of miss it. It smells really good, but then it saves a lot it, of money. <laughs> it just tastes like garbage. But um, So I'll make a, a Lipton decaf tea and then I put a, either an orange, a raspberry, or occasionally a, a citrus in that. And I'll drink on that in the morning. Um, I, I will make another two of these to take with me to jujitsu. Wow. And one of them I sip on while I drive to jujitsu, which is about 20 minutes. And I drink another one of these through the the class. And then when the open mat starts, sometimes I go over and take a sip, but usually not. Like I do a half hour to an hour of open mat. And then as I drive home, I will drink that other one. That's basically kind of my recovery. And then from there, I just kind of go off of how I feel. Like if I'm still feeling kind of knackered and tired, then I'll do another one. And again, I, I go by the flavor, but like, right. if I'm still tired, I never ends up tasting salty. Like, so it sounds kind of crazy, but I almost drink myself out of that, that training fugue by getting adequate sodium. And I, uh, for a variety of reasons, we've tried to make the family lunch more of like an antipasta plate. It's like salami and cheese and, and, you know, lunch meats and stuff like that, because I can pull off cooking breakfast. I can pull off cooking dinner and maybe we eat some leftovers for lunch, but like cooking another meal when we're in and back and forth and everything, I just can't do it. But, uh, Mm I'll get some pepperoncini, some olives, uh, salami. I get some really sodium rich foods as part of my, my lunch, because again, this is all happening right after my, my hard training. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of go by that. And then something that I picked up from Chris Masterjohn is, uh, I, I don't necessarily do an element, but sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but I'll do about a gram of sodium in a tiny little bit of water. Like just enough to kind of swizzle it in. And I do that immediately before bed because it downregulates antidiuretic hormone, which also tends to downregulate cortisol and epinephrine. So it actually helps you sleep and not wake up in the middle of the night to pee or, you know, just generally. Wake I'm going to try so, that. I'm trying that yeah. tonight. Wow. It, it, uh, Master John is like 10 times smarter than I am. And, <laughs> and, uh, this when he lot. threw this out there, I, I, I was like, oh, this makes a ton of sense. And when we do our, Healthy Rebellion Resets, the part of the community that we have, when people are trying to deal with their sleep, that, that sodium shot before bed has just been like magic. Like, I'm, I'm you know, yeah, yeah. So that's a pretty typical day. And, you know, um, uh, we had the good opportunity before COVID to go down to Costa Rica and do a jujitsu intensive with Henry Aikens. And, uh, we would do two, two hour sessions each day of jujitsu, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Wow. And again, it was 90 degrees, 90% humidity. And I would say I was doing eight or 10 of these a day. And, and even then, even though I'm like part of the company and everything, I would just buy salt and potassium chloride and mix it in a gallon jug with, with a little bit of lemon juice and stevia and just mix it up because I, I would drink three or four of these through the course of a two hour session. And I never cramped. I didn't get brain fade. Like if people are cramping, like they get, particularly in jujitsu, you get the little toe cramps and stuff. Or like, you, you know, you had a hard training day and you stretch out in bed and your toe or calf cramps. Yep. You're way far down the, the electrolyte deficiency Deal. Wow. Like you okay. re- And you probably felt like garbage relative to what you could have had you had adequate electrolytes. But, you know, if I'm in a really warm environment doing a lot of activity, my electrolyte intake may double, nearly triple during that time. So it's a, it's a huge variation, but it, with a little bit of tinkering people, I think get a good, um, intuitive sense of where they need to be with this stuff, but it, it's just kind of cracking them through that initial, like wow i really need that much sodium and i'm still surprised like i'm i'm just flabbergasted by you know how much better i feel and really kind of how much sodium i need to really feel my best and operate at these these levels
0: is it possible to like overdose on this stuff like what would be the repercussion it, of that
1: it is the main issue is that people will get disaster pants and this is one of the <laughs> the the real problematic features of going too concentrated if you get a very um hypertonic solution in our gut. It pulls water out of our system to dilute it mm. and you get a whoosh effect. So mm. that's usually the big deal. Um, uh, there's a small percentage of the population that are sodium sensitive hyper responders, and they will get uh, an elevated blood pressure with that. But again, I, I, our understanding of that is that the vast majority of those people are insulin resistant and they don't need more sodium, but what they do need to do is eat a lower processed diet, maybe mitigate the carb types and amounts that they're eating. And then once they get there, then they're going to need more sodium, mm-hmm. but we need to fix the dietary and lifestyle features first. And then the the sodium is, is probably going to be in higher need at that point.
0: Yeah. I mean, geez, the dietary needs, especially with COVID and all that yeah. stuff happening. Oh my God. Just, yeah. Just fixing what you eat fixes most of your problems.
1: Right. Right. But,
0: um, yeah, now if you ever find out where that salt is from, or if you ever, if it ever comes oh, back, do cause some I'm digging. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but yeah, I, I just know it's pun, like upstate New York. Yeah. Pun intended. Yeah. digging. But, um, yeah, cause I'm from born and raised upstate New York. So okay. I'm just genuinely curious. Cause I saw your video on YouTube where you guys filmed in Utah, I believe. So it was, what was that? The Bonneville salt flats. Is that where that yeah. was? Yeah. Is that, is that a cool place? It's on my bucket list just to stop by and go there.
1: It, it's kind of otherworldly it really is and yeah. the day that we got there it was cold mm. and windy and they wanted us in t-shirts so they could do these kind of cool photos and videos and it, it was i mean Crimea river it's very first world problems but it kind of sucked you know it was like yeah. damn it's cold out here i want to parka yeah yeah. what time of year was that at it was like november so okay. it was like crystal clear it was really beautiful but it, i i think the outside temperature was maybe like 38 39 degrees and there was like a just consistent like 25 30 mile an hour wind just blowing dude it got it got cold in a hurry man yeah wow wow yeah, yeah
0: that is definitely one place i really want to want to check out for one reason or another i've seen pictures yeah. there i've seen videos there it's like oh this place looks absolutely mind-blowing and i've i've been to um white sands national mm-hmm. it's a national park now I don't know if you have but it, it somewhat reminds me of that but seems yep. to have a lot flatter if you will yeah but, um, no, Rob, I, I, I think that about wraps it up here. I, and like you said, the, the flavors, like I'm looking at the flavors when I got boxes right in front of me. Awesome. I'm not even like a spicy guy and you have like the lemon habanero and mango chili. Yep. They're, they're fun. It's, it's a really fun good. drink. And, yeah. you know, I do have one more question for you is, um, as far as like, you know, the obvious big rivals are Gatorade and Powerade. Correct me if I'm wrong, but those carry just a ton of sugars. Am I right? Is that the big downside of those drinks?
1: Yeah. I mean, they do. Both of them have a, a, a non-sugar options, but they still are really underpowered in sodium. Like mm. when you look at the, a given serving, they're more like 180 to 280 uh, milligrams of sodium, whereas we have a thousand milligrams of ser- sodium per serving. And back in the day, there was a time when Gatorade was first launched. Its initial iteration was a gram of sodium, and mm-hmm. over time, the sodium has gone down, the sugar has gone up. So it's, uh it, you know, anything. And again, we still offer the homebrew for free. Like if people go to drinkelement.com forward slash i, I think homebrew, they can get our old homebrew guide and make this stuff on our own, on their wow. own. You know, That's you don't awesome. have to get this stuff. And part of that guide is helping educate people about sodium rich foods and, you know, the, the stuff to kind of lean into, to be able to address that from a dietary perspective, we've been of the opinion that this stuff is super convenient and it tastes really good. So if people try it, they'll be like, oh, this is totally worth doing. But if, you know, our main goal is just to make people aware that they would probably function a lot better, particularly on the recovery side, if their sodium and electrolytes are better addressed. And so if we can get some trust and some buy-in with that, and we give people Mm. some freemium options, then the person's like, oh, okay, I'll try the sample pack. They try the sample pack. They're like, oh, that tastes really good. The lemon habanero makes an amazing margarita base. (laughs) And so they start doing their mixed drinks with it and all that type of stuff. And, and so we, uh, it's kind of cool because we don't have to tell any like fantastical stories about our proprietary like mineral mix or anything. It's like, they taste really good. They're, they're convenient. And, uh, I think we formulated them well, like we were smart in the way that we put the sodium potassium magnesium in there.
0: Yeah. You can tell, I mean, obviously you're a business, but, clearly it's like, you guys are in it for the benefit of the people. You know, when you just put like the homebrew, like recipe, here's how you can make it yourself. Right. We're so comfortable in our product. Like, here you go. It's like, right. it just reminds me a little bit of like Elon, where he just he creates the battery and you know, here's like, here's my blueprint. This is how you create the batteries. It's just, I want to make right. a better planet, you know? So it's hard not to get behind a company like that. And someone like you who put all this research and knowledge into this product and, uh, You know, it helped me dive deeper into what I'm intaking or why I'm intaking it. And hopefully, this podcast helps so many other people do the same. And so, it's just one of those things where you, when you put something in your mouth and in your body, you want to have an understanding of what exactly is happening, what's going on in there. So, You've done a really, really good job breaking it down, and you're just one of you're one of the smartest people I've ever talked to. And, oh well, thank uh,
1: you. You got to get out more than we, <laughs> we need to improve your social circle for sure. Yeah, you yeah, need hook- to talk to Chris Masterjohn, then you'll be like, yeah, Rob's an idiot. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: well, hook me up; I'll be more than happy to. Easy, but um, easy. But I would love to get uh get a sneak peek of anything that you're working on. What can we expect from Rob Wolf in the near future?
1: Oh man! I mean, I, I wrote this third book, Sacred Cow, which looks at the environmental, ethical, and health considerations of a meat-inclusive food system, and it's a uh, it's a spicy meatball. Unpacking that, you know, like mm-hmm. a lot of discussion around like uh, animal husbandry, greenhouse gases, climate change. Like, it's a really controversial, hot topic. Uh, one can find themselves canceled very quickly <laughs> talking about this because if you're like, "Hey, we need to have a nuanced discussion around." climate change, then people are like, Oh, you're a climate change denier and you, you want old people to die. And it's just this like crazy, you know, slide there. But I I put a fair amount of time into that. And then we spun up the, the healthy rebellion, which, um, just really quickly, I'll try to tell this story quickly, Mm -hmm. but in 2017, my, my website, robwolf.com quite high ranked, like it got a lot of traffic and everything. And then one day I woke up and the the traffic had reduced by like 97%. And I I got a call from like Chris Kresser and Mark and They're like, hey, is your website all fucked up? I'm like, yeah, it it is. And we were all part of this Google owl update. And people can search this Google owl update. And what it was, was this first iteration. And this was back in 2017 of Google beginning to really curate what they felt like was credible health advice. And- You know, for 20 years, Google had built itself by curating all information and then kind of democratizing seemingly who was providing the best information. And clearly, there are there are people who I think have terrible advice and it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny and everything. But Google had decided that, you know, we're going to go real hardcore like WebMD. That's it. Anything outside of that is, is you know garbage, uh, even though there's interesting financial ties between these entities and Google. But the long and short is that my website effectively disappeared from the internet. Now, I wasn't deplatformed, but where I had hundreds of posts on different topics that if somebody searched ketogenic diet, uh, uh, polycystic kidney disease, I was like a number one rank, you know, and I had all these different things like that. And I feel like it put a lot of work into it and provided a lot of value. That's why people came back. That's why people bought the books, you know, um, that became almost impossible to find. And so I was really at this spot where I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, do I just close up shop and become a farmer and, you know, do something else? But I still felt like I had some work to do in the, the health space. And so we started this thing called the healthy rebellion, which is a a, online community where, we do resets and we help people, you know, try to get more metabolically healthy. The goal of the healthy rebellion is to liberate a million people from the sick care system. And we have this kind of three-step process for, for going about doing that. So I'm definitely investing a ton of time and, and energy into doing that. And, you know, then you kind of fast forward and we've had all the social upheaval, all the cancel culture, all the censorship that is, gone on. And so um, I'm trying to figure out how to be most effective at cautioning against the danger of where we're going with that stuff. And I get it that there are some people that are really like, we need somebody to monitor this stuff. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, maybe I, I, I get the, the, you know, the sentiment there, but like it, it, an example to really impactful to me, maybe it's not impactful to other people, but most people are probably familiar that, uh, uh, there's a, a notion in medicine that taking a baby aspirin every day mitigates the risk of like certain types of uh, heart attack and stroke like it, it's a bit of a blood thinner and it was maybe 25 30 years ago that some studies suggested that that was maybe beneficial and then we had 20 plus years that that was the standard of care you know a recommendation of a baby aspirin a day um, with more scrutiny and more more data uh, uh A couple of weeks ago, the, you know, the main medical entities said, we need to stop doing that. It is more dangerous giving people a baby aspirin every day than what we're getting benefit. There's, when we look at all cause mortality, there's clearly a signal here that this consistently taking the baby aspirin at a population level is probably problematic. Now there may be some individuals that benefit from this, but that's probably something that they and their doctor need to figure out. And this shouldn't be a public health level recommendations. So when people get wrapped up in this thing, we're like, well, we need to follow the science or we need to you know, do what the authorities do. The authorities change their position on things frequently because mm-hmm. the data updates. And oftentimes the data updates because of the internet and social media and people experimenting and, and a, a non-trivial number of studies are spun up because you find people doing something new, or you find some some data geek who who's poking around on the interwebs and I'm like, hey, there's a bunch of you know interesting information over here. So, I don't know what what my point was to that, other than you know that's kind of where my my focus is is trying to figure out uh, how to uh, sell a message that like freedom of information and freedom of access to that information is, although there are dangers. There's, you know, there's potential risks and and all that stuff, but I think it's far better to let everybody say what they Mm -hmm. think Mm -hmm. and then hash that out and let people compare notes and put the best models forward. And and I have faith that, you know, in markets and people um, being smart enough to just kind of know what works for them, you know, and, (laughs) and, you know, I have more faith in that than I do in, Uh, some pimple faced 20 year old Facebook kid who's got a a computer science background, you know, being put in charge of curating health information. You Mm -hmm. know, that seems like a terrible idea to say nothing. of The fact that all of medicine, all of science should have a sign hung on it that says good until further notice. Like this Mm -hmm. may be our best understanding that we have today, but you know, we may completely reverse our position on this in the future.
0: I agree with you. It's funny. Just last night, I was having a conversation with a lady who cut my hair. And I was just like, we were talking about she's got a kid. I was like, I remember when I was a kid, we were all taught about the food pyramid. I was like, I don't even think that's even like still standing these days. And right. You know, because of that, I had frosted flakes every morning and the terrible cereals because grains were supposed to be a big part of my, you know, my breakfast or whatever. It's just that science changes. and Thank God for that, you know, honestly. And so I appreciate you, um, you know, really kind of just getting the um, just the knowledge out there and let people make kind of like a decision for themselves. And I love how, like, when you're talking about Element, yeah, this is your business, but you're still kind of cautioning where it's like, it's different for everybody. You know, right. don't just, it's not standard, go take two packets a day. Let's just try to crank in our, our, our money here. It's uh, you I genuinely care about the people and how they feel and uh, you're getting the conversation started and that's really important.
1: Yeah. I have this nutty idea that if I really help people, like legit help them then they're going to find a book or a product or an ebook or like element or something. It'll be like, well, if he helped me over here, maybe this thing's helpful there. And so that I, That's and, the greatest. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, I'm a very, in a very fortunate spot to be able to, to do that. But it's, it's built on 20 years of like answering thousands of questions and, and really trying to do good by folks, but I still enjoy it. And it, it's a, it's a super gratifying way to to make a living for sure. That's
0: awesome. Well, you did well by me today. You know, I just I reached out to the element people and they said, you know, if you want to have a podcast with them, here's a link. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And here we are today. We had never met and had a great conversation. I'm super informed now. I I think you're just an incredible person. And like I said, like I know it's not just me. You gave your time to a lot of people. I found that out when I was researching more about you and uh I saw that. I was like, this, this guy is really, really generous with his time and knowledge. Oh, thank you. So, yeah. no, well, thank I'll you. be
1: shaking you down because my daughter is absolutely fascinated with Huskies. I have, so, I
0: have two of them now. I've had three in my whole life. And uh, I I have a lot of knowledge to share on Huskies. And I, I Montana, will be circling back with you. Montana is the one of the best places to get Husky. I'm in Carolina. I feel terrible right. in the summers, but... Uh, yeah, I'm more more than happy to have a conversation on my huskies. I, I love them; they're they're pretty awesome. great. So, um, yeah, I post a lot about them, and uh, so next time I post, I'll I'll give you a tag, and you can see. What awesome, it looks please like. do. Yeah, no, I absolutely will. But uh, Rob Wolf, you've been awesome. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I hope we can continue this chat again some other time. There's a there's a lot I would like like to pick your brain on, but uh, once again, I appreciate your time so much today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rob. If you are listening to this episode, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. I thank you so much. I would absolutely love to have you back on. This was an absolute blast. And I guarantee if you listen to this episode, you learned something that you can apply to your life. Yes, go check them out at drinkelement.com. You can get a free sample pack. Yes, it's free. I believe it's just five bucks for shipping. It's so worth it. I actually got a pack right after I tried a sample pack because it's delicious. Chocolate is my absolute favorite. It tastes incredible. So once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. I am Ryan. Please, if you can, take a moment to leave me a rating and a review. I really appreciate it. And please subscribe to be notified when the next episode is released.